Hello and welcome everyone uh, to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Darin Asaf and I'm a fellow at Cumberland Lodge. If you are unfamiliar with us, we are a charity founded in 1947 based in Windsor Great Park. We convene multi-sector conferences, panel debates and retreats that engage people of all ages, backgrounds and perspectives in candid conversations on pressing societal and ethical issues. If this is your first time joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other work. And we discuss topical issues focused on building social cohesion. Our last Dialogue and Debate took place in November and it was about beyond tokenism. And we discussed ways of addressing the practice of tokenism to achieve more meaningful diversity and inclusion. If you missed it, you can watch the webinar on demand via read, watch, listen page of our website or on SoundCloud and other major broadcasting platforms. As you know, uh, the world yesterday celebrated International Women's Day and the theme of this year is represented by the hashtag break the bias. Uh, it calls the words a world free of bias, stereotyping and discriminations. So today's themes is uh, discussing women in leadership in celebrations of International Women's Day. To discuss this topic, I'm delighted to, uh, that we are joined by our panelists, Detective Superintendent Bola Beckerdike, West Yorkshire Police, Simon Gallo, advocate and he for she led at UN Women UK, Britt Gorgel, MP, Labour and Cooperative Member of Parliament for Birmingham, Edge Baston, Shadow Cabinet Minister for International Development, and Alexandra Ramadan, was doctoral researcher at University of Oxford. Thank you so much for being with us today. Through, uh, throughout this one hour webinar, we would like to invite you to submit your questions. To do so, you can use the Q&A function if you are watching live on Zoom or by commenting on our Facebook live streaming. We are also live tweeting. It would be great to hear your reviews and the questions and you can do so by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge using uh, the break the bias hashtag and dialogue and debate hashtag. We are now going to start uh, with a quick poll to hear, from your, uh, to hear from our audience. The poll will pop up on your screen now. So the question is, does your organization have a culture that adequately supports women's leaders? You can answer by yes, no, or somewhat. All right, results are in now. So we have like 31% voted with yes, 13% voted with no, and somewhat like it is the highest percentage, 56%. Anyone from our panelists got any comment about this? All right, if no, so let's start with uh, our panelists now. I would like to start with Alex, if you don't mind. So you, you have worked on increasing access and supporting inclusion in, physics, in the physics department at the University of Oxford. What are the challenges and opportunities for increasing inclusion in sectors in which women have been historically underrepresented? Thank you, Doreen. Um, well, firstly, I think it's worth saying that there are still some people that deny that a problem even exists. These people are, I think, a small minority, but they are vocal. And in my experience working in higher education, I've seen this at all levels. It's not an age thing. 
we see it from professors to undergraduate students. And what's aside from the fact that the statistics fundamentally disagree with them, these people don't seem to understand that this, it's not a matter of opinion. The statistics don't lie and that by choosing to pretend a problem doesn't exist, they're perpetuating the problem and they are adding to an already hostile environment for the women working in these sectors. I think what is a bigger problem is that there are many people who are very willing to acknowledge that the inclusion of women in these spaces is a problem, but they're not able to go the step further and understand why or even take small steps in their own activities to try and improve inclusion in small ways. I think one thing we can all do is we can be better listeners and we can listen to people's experiences and think about how we can do our bit to improve the environments we work in. And I think a prime example of this sort of problem is when we look at things like talks, seminars and conferences, in my sector of science, I've lost count of how many times I've seen lineups of, let's say, 10 speakers and only one or two are women or even worse than none. And then if you contact the organizers of the conferences or sessions and you say, what happened? This isn't good enough. You'll regularly receive responses like, well, you know, we invited this one other woman and she just couldn't make it. And that's the problem right there. There's this unwillingness to try and make a small effort, the effort of thinking, okay, I need to make sure I invite enough people to ensure I have gender parity on my panels of my speakers. And people aren't even willing to engage and do that small thing that they themselves can do to make the situation better. You know, you can't be what you can't see. And if we don't see women in spaces, it's a message that you're sending to people that women do not belong in these spaces. And I think situations like this, we can make a difference quite easily and yet lots of people just aren't willing to do that. Um, and that brings me on kind of to another problem where we do see inclusion of women in these spaces. These women are predominantly white women. Um, I think that intersectionality is so important and we need to be making sure that any efforts we make to in include women in these um, historically very male spaces include all types of women from all groups. And there needs to be an acknowledgement that the, the challenges that, for example, women of color face are very different to that of their white counterparts and that there isn't this one size fits all solution for engaging women in these spaces. Um, and I think all these things kind of tie into this one big problem and that is cultural there is a culture problem in these sorts of spaces. They are not welcoming to women, <clears throat> excuse me. If you are the only woman in a room, it's exhausting and it feels hostile and you can feel simultaneously incredibly frustrated and this huge burden of responsibility to, you know, be the face for all women and be so successful so that you're demonstrating that women deserve to be here and that's far too much pressure to be putting on women in these spaces we are not the problem in these spaces we should not be made to feel anything other than how we want to feel um, and this leads me on really nicely to the opportunities that i think uh, we all have and i think something everyone can do irrespective of your sector or the time you have to give is to do your bit to improve the culture and so based on what you commit 
you can commit time-wise. That might just be sending an email, for example, to conference organizers and saying, no, I'm not happy with the makeup of your speakers. Um, we're at this incredible time in our history where we have such connections across the world through the internet, through the ability to video call and social media, and we can build supportive networks where we can facilitate change through. We can learn from other people's actions. I've spent so much time over the past few years talking to people around the world, hearing what activities they've done, what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them. And we can make projects together and we can do our bit to try and change our local cultures and hopefully build more inclusive environments. And I think if we all do that, we can have spaces where women feel included and not just included, like welcomed, belonging. And I think that's what we all want to see in our spaces. Thank you so much, Alexandra. That's really very interesting. Uh, now I'd like to move to Bula and I'd like to, um, uh, to ask you these questions like, Bula, you have talked openly about your experience of motherhood and leadership. Now, what factors affected women's self-confidence to take senior positions? And has the pandemic impacted your own experience of leadership, if at all? Thank you, Darren. Well, so my own personal experience is that I'm a senior officer in West Yorkshire Police. Um, my position is as head of the Safeguarding Central Governance Unit at the rank of Detective Superintendent. So it's a role that carries a lot of responsibility and risk for the force and for the people of West Yorkshire. Um, and I'm charged with ensuring that we're compliant with the law and guidance in several areas such as domestic abuse, child sexual exploitation, abuse, neglect. Um, I sit in overall charge of our response to managing the registered sex offenders in the county, at the head of our involvement in serious case reviews for domestic homicide, child reviews, adults at risk, and our approach to missing people and mental health. Um, and then I have my more challenging role, which is uh, mum to a 23-year-old. <laughs> um, I am someone who speaks openly about the challenges of balancing motherhood and leadership, um, as it really is a daily battle. And I do think that women have a different experience of this balance than perhaps men do. Um, I don't know if anyone listening is a fan of Glennon Doyle, but, you know, she talks quite a lot about this, is that the mental load of women, um, or in a way that I can better relate to, she talks about the constant ticker tape of news that exists in your mind, the to-do list in all areas. So work, partner, mother, daughter, where you never quite catch up with anything. Um, and I still think we raise women in our society to please. Um, and to a large extent, what affects female confidence is that constant thought that you're always potentially letting somebody down or not doing quite well enough. Um, and obviously that's clearly linked as well to imposter syndrome. So it, it is a fact that women take on the majority of caring responsibilities. There's numerous studies that show that women are responsible for keeping household routines, organizing schedules, maintaining order, providing emotional support to children and older relatives. Um, and that's regardless of how fantastic a partner you have. So my partner is male and we did share parental leave. So he's absolutely as capable as I am in caring for our son. Um, and that really helps our dynamic because he understands the pressure of that. But my confidence to do a senior post in the police is that I know he can run that world too. Um, but I still probably shoulder the administrative burden of who is where at any given point. <laughs> Um, and it's a conversation that we try to have frequently. So we try to check in with how I'm feeling around that, sharing the load. 
but there's definitely more on my plate which leaves me frustrated and exhausted on some days um so I'm not trying to give the impression that I'm a superwoman here because I can get as frustrated as the next person but I think it's about you will drop balls but you've got to accept that some of those balls are rubber and some are glass and and I think there's an acceptance for me that the myth of having it all that's been perpetuated over years is, is, is not really helpful um, and is in fact just a myth. Um, so a supportive working environment is very important. Um, and that means that one that accepts that the world outside of work is one that women experience differently and that can affect women's confidence to succeed hugely. So it's not enough for organisations in my mind to provide part-time and flexible working options, but you have to change that culture in which that sits as well. So an example from my own organisation, which I, which is really doing some fantastic work around this, is changing the application process for promotions. So we used to have a form that was completed and required the written support of senior line management. Um, and on the surface of that, it seems very sensible. But if you look underneath that, it can mean that people might not be supported if they have a lack of involvement in the less visible and invisible networks. So if you think, for example, of the woman who arrives to work just on time, having done school drop off while a male colleague has had morning coffee with a colleague, dashing to the supermarket in lunch break to get yet another World Book Day costume or working through it to finish earlier, declining the leaving due drinks on a Thursday night because she doesn't have a babysitter as a single mother. You can see how the male candidate requiring the direct support of someone they socialise with might be more likely to win support. So this is where I talk about the really invisible stuff that we've sought to try and take out of some of our processes in West Yorkshire Place. Um, and you mentioned the pandemic, and I think there is a relevance to the pandemic because women are returning to the office in lesser numbers at this point because they've developed a work-life balance over the past two years that for many physically depends on them being present in the home. Um, there is a positive to this and many women will say that it works well for them but we do need to understand the downside of that. So Catherine Mann from the Bank of England quite recently warned about the potential um, she session um, as opposed to a recession in relation to this. Um, and I've seen it directly in some of my female colleagues and friends and relatives that their load has only increased in the home during the pandemic. Um, so to summarise in, in, in answer to your question, for me, there's, there's many factors that affect women's confidence to seek senior positions. Um, mental load, overburden of caring responsibilities and home admin, the desire perhaps to please in all areas of life, the invisible structures in the workplace. Um, and yes, I think all of those perhaps have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Thank you so much, Paula. It is really very interesting. Thank you. And especially the invisible things that like we, not all people talk about it actually, but it do affect like women in senior positions. Now I will move to Brett. And Brett, from your experience working in politics, what are the key challenges that women face in reaching or retaining leadership roles? And how can we create a culture that attracts and retains women leaders in politics? Well, thank you so much. And can I just say it's uh, absolutely brilliant to join such an impressive uh, panellists and speakers today. Well, last year, I was really pleased to work with the Westminster Foundation for Democracy on a report that they actually published on women political leaders across the world. And it gathered evidence from across the globe on some of the barriers that women face entering politics. And it was something, I guess, that really chimed with my own sort of lived experience. And the report actually evidenced that, that many of the obstacles that women actually face in public life are in a sense universal. And it just reminds us just how much work we all really have to do, but also that the shared challenge ought to also be a basis for solidarity between women and feminists worldwide. So one of the lessons that I took away 
from reading this report was how women are often each other's greatest champions. And that is why it is such a pleasure to enjoy to join this event in such good company today. But the state of the game for women in UK politics has really come a long way in recent years. We elected our second female prime minister in 2017. The Labour Party achieved parity between the number of women and men that speak for it in Parliament in 2019. And the Labour Party also appointed the first ever woman as shadow chancellor of the Exchequer. And we've seen Westminster rocked by the Me Too scandal, triggering overdue reforms of our working and our reporting practices. In all of these achievements, I think we can all recognise that these that they haven't actually been a given, but they've been hard won. And I remember my first local Labour Party meeting because I was a councillor before I uh, arrived here. I'm feeling quite not outnumbered, really, in a very sort of stuffy community uh, centre room dominated by middle aged men. Many of them actually had done outstanding work, sometimes for decades, um, serving our local communities. But I, I, I guess I really found myself sidelined from discussions or treated very differently as a woman who wanted her voice to be heard. And as I became more active in politics, I continued to experience those setbacks. In some cases, I think it took the form of very blatant sexism. Once I remember offering my take on an issue in our local area, and bear in mind, I actually lived in the ward that I was representing. Um, and I was uh, you know, pretty much told to go home and look after my children and not concern myself with the matter. Um, so as a woman in politics, and indeed as a politician, you really have to learn to pick your battles. And I guess at the time I chose to ignore that comment because it takes a lot of energy having to address these stereotypes. and. I knew where I wanted to get to and I was not going to let any man stand in the way of that. So I also you also have to make peace with yourself about well, what is it that you are going to raise, because what's the impact it's going to have on you, your energy, your focus, as opposed to where do you channel those and focus those energies about the difference you actually can make, uh, as opposed to dealing with these flippant comments that all of us as women experience in our everyday lives. Um, but I guess at other times the discrimination was less brazen, but no less real. I remember putting myself forward for a cabinet position after just being uh, a councillor for about a year. And I was told in no uncertain terms to stay in my lane, even though the brief uh, in child protection was what I'd actually been doing in my whole career as a frontline children's services manager. Um, and I remember being called into the leader's office uh, and I naively explaining what I thought I had to con contribute. Uh, I was asked, why have you applied for this role? And I was um, pretty much told in forceful terms that it doesn't actually quite work like that. It doesn't matter what experience you have. You need to wait your turn. There are men in the queue who've been waiting for an opening for many, many years. And how on earth did you think after a year that you should put yourself forward? Uh, I guess for me, though, it was a real lesson in how power works, how women are disadvantaged by incumbency where they're not represented. And really for the time that it can take for that change, if not for the greatest activists in our movement pushing uh, for progress. And I think things like that, after being year in a councillor, can really knock your confidence um, because, you know, this idea that actually we don't put ourselves forward and suddenly when we do put ourselves forward, we're kind of really put in our place very, very quickly. I'm sure it's not the same uh, for our male counterparts. And there's lots of research that suggests otherwise. Um, but I guess women still make up less than a quarter of the representatives and legislators worldwide. In the UK, of course, we beat this average, but not by enough. At 34 percent of MPs, councils are a similar story. And let's not even start at the House of Lords because uh, there are huge concerns there. 
But it's a source of great pride for my own party, I guess, that we've led the way on female representation with 51% of our MPs now being women. And in terms of female representation, research shows that political parties have an almost unique responsibility to be engines for change. I guess the progress Labour has made has been long and slow journey from the Margaret Bonfields and Barbara Castles, who absolutely, uh, you know, trailblazing in decades past to the party policies and initiatives that have really got us to where we are um, right now. So some of these are such as our strong stance on all women shortlists. I'm, I am a great believer. You have got to have clear targets or uh, policy initiatives that enable gender parity to take place. Um, and of course, there are initiatives like the Joe Cox Women in Leadership Programme. Uh, so I personally thank uh, you, you know, uh, the, these opportunities for opening doors to me that might otherwise have been closed or I might never have been uh, even thought to try to open. Because obviously when I stood in 2017 in my home seat, it was a all women shortlist. Uh, and that is really, really important that we've had those. But, so as a society, I think we've come a long way. I'm incredibly lucky and proud to have been elected as the first female Sikh MP in the United Kingdom. But I'm equally frustrated that it took until 2017 for that to happen. Uh, and having campaigned, I guess, in the sort of streets and neighbourhoods of the world famous Christabel Pankhurst and the formidable Mary MacArthur, I don't underestimate actually that the work that has since gone into making our elected representatives gradually come to look more like the people that they actually serve. And I want to be clear, female representation politics isn't just a matter of fairness and equality, it's actively good for our democracy. Women political leaders encourage other women to get more involved in the democratic process, not just by inspiring others, but, but, but breaking down the barriers to participation that hold others like them back. So evidence shows, shows that female politicians tend to put a higher priority on constituent casework, social issues like health and education that disproportionately concern women with caring responsibilities. We've got local elections uh, at the moment in Birmingham and in my constituency of the 10 possible candidates, I'm so proud eight of those are female. And it isn't out of chance. It's about pushing and asking her to stand. It's about telling women, I think you've got something to offer. You should really stand. And I've had women come to me and saying, no one's ever said that to me. No one's ever said I should do that. And so thank you very much. And I'm really proud, actually, um, that the seat I represent has been female since 1953. And now we have eight candidates who are women who are putting themselves forward from diverse backgrounds as well, which is absolutely phenomenal. So representation really creates a vicious cycle, which is not just good for the women who break through, but it's good for democracy too. So I think this event is timely because the pandemic has really provided a stark reminder of the many barriers um, that, that women have had to overcome in order to fully participate in public life. And the economic fallout of the pandemic has fallen disproportionately on women in the informal economy. As Paula said, the burden of childcare responsibilities while schools have been closed and the breaking up of sport networks while lockdowns have been enforced Faced with this, it's no wonder why women find it difficult to get on the path to becoming political leaders. And it's probably why we end up with shocking disparities where women make up 70% of global health sector workers, but less than a quarter of health ministers worldwide. So ultimately, the disparities that we see in terms of the proportion of women in positions of leadership is a symptom of structural issues that hold women back in everything from cultural norms and expectations to social policy and violence against women. Are you able to stay and work the room at an evening function, as Paula said, or do you have to go home to put the kids to bed? I guess in some societies, going out at night as a candidate to canvas is out of question as a woman. So knowing just how razor thin those margins in politics can be, you realise how much can stack against you as a female political candidate. So as a mother to two girls, I'm determined to leave a legacy 
legacy of a more gender equal world for them and to raise them to carry on that torch. And yet, having spent most of the pandemic with my daughters at home, I know for for many women in politics, there's just no escape there's no let up in terms of our duties and what we were expected to do, juggling our professional lives, caring for our children, taking on roles as teachers, uh, completing our domestic chores. And behind closed doors, many of us are still fighting for equality in our own homes. And that's the honest truth. And I think as women, we build resilience to keep going because so many others are dependent on us. And I remember when I'm sure it's the same when you've been unwell, I might rest for one day, but that guilt suddenly steps in, doesn't it? And you think, oh, my God, I've got to sort the kids out. I've got all these other things I need to do. How can I be how can I afford to be unwell so that you're in this constant vicious cycle of putting high expectations and demands on yourself? And some of that is a function of particularly underfunded and inhospitable legislators in the UK, if you compare it to countries like the United States, for example. But you rub it against, uh, but you rub against it much more, I guess, as a woman. So events like this are a moment to remember that actually some of the tools we have to bring more women into the room are actually readily at our disposal, whether in government or out. As individuals, we can be the role models, we can be the mentors, the support networks for others. And as leaders on this panel, we've got to ask ourselves, what can we be doing to help open those doors? Women demonstrate political leadership every day, even when they are not bestowed with an office or official title. But we deprive ourselves and we deprive the world when women are held back from taking those formal positions of leadership. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this very inspirational and motivational talk. Indeed, thank you. Now I will move to Simon, our male allies here, and it's how important to have a male supporter talking about women in leadership. Simon, you are an advocate for he and she, UN Women's Global Campaign on Male Allyship for Gender Equality. Uh, how important is it to have male allies who may support women's progression? Thank you so much for that uh, question. Um, and thank you so much for having me today. It's an absolute privilege to be here and to join the panel um, with so many amazing uh, women as well. Um, women spend so many uh, so much of the year uh, fighting to break down barriers in the workplace and education, but actually International Women's Day is an important uh, moment to uh, have a positive outlook and celebrate so many amazing women that we all work with. So thank you so much again for giving uh, me this space today. Um, yes, so I am the, uh, I'm the He for She lead for UN uh, Women UK, UN Women is the, gen is the UN Agency for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women and Girls. And He for She is our global movement that was started in 2014 to get state leaders, corporate leaders and grassroots activists uh, to engage men and boys in the conversations and solutions around gender equality. And often when I join these panels or I give presentations, I often get questions about my motivations. Why am I interested in this stuff? Why am I passionate about these issues? Why uh, am I an advocate for UN Women? And I often give two uh, reasons. The first is that I was sick and tired of, it, of gender equality being framed as a women's issue, to be discussed by women, solved by women, and fought for by women, when most of the issues that women face are because of men, my gender, masculinity, so whether you're talking about in inequalities in education, whether you're talking about cultural issues in the workplace, in politics or violence on our streets, until you engage men and boys and you educate them about these problems, you will not have long term sustainable change. And two, I have a deep, firmly held belief that equality for women is progress for all women, men, 
and all genders. So whether that is men who are more or more able to be open about their sexuality, whether that is men who are able to follow non-traditional career paths, such as primary education or nursing, or whether that is men who are more able to spend time at home with their children. If we have equality for women, we can have equality for everyone, and ultimately everyone benefits as a result of that. And now more than ever, we have to get men and boys engaged in these conversations around gender equality. We still live in a world where we have 100 years to wait until we achieve parity between men and women. And UN Women estimates that globally, 25 years of progress could have been lost due to the pandemic, which has exacerbated and exposed many of these inequalities. Now, of course, we've made progress since the suffragettes. Of course, we've made progress since uh, women's uh, greater representation in the workplace. Indeed, when Paula Alexandra Preach started their careers, of course, we've made progress. But we need more urgent change. If you have children or young girls or boys that are growing up today, we do not want to have to wait 100 years till we achieve that parity. And indeed, we still have those inequalities. If we look at the FTSE 350 of the largest uh, uh, companies on the stock exchange, just 16 of those CEOs are women, and just two of those are women of color. Not only is that just simply bad governance because you don't have proper representation at the highest levels of, of our companies, but it also means that we don't have role models. If you are a young black girl, you don't have anyone to look up to and say, yes, I can't, that space is for me. Yes, I can achieve that. That's why we need to have change. But also, and I'm glad to see that we're beginning to have more of a sensible and mature discussion about these issues. We still have too much sexual harassment on our streets, in our workplaces, and broader violence against women. During the pandemic, we saw a 50% uh, rise in reported incidents of domestic abuse. On our streets, UN Women UK did a survey that said just 3% of 16 to 24 year old women had not experienced sexual harassment. And as all the women on the panel and on this call will know, that figure is realistically likely to be zero. And indeed, it is one year since the tragic murder of Sarah Everard. And since then, yes, we've had more conversations. Yes, we've had more awareness, but we have still had 125 women killed as a result of gender-based violence. So we need to have change and men have to be allies and advocates within that change, both individually in terms of their behaviours and the norms and expectations, but also in terms of the action that they take as leaders in their organisations or indeed uh, uh, in the public sector as well. On the individual level, men can do a few different things. One, educate yourself. Do some research. Speak to, speak to women, understand their experiences. I guarantee that if you take positive, respectful steps to understand different experiences, you will get a positive response. Secondly, listen to all women. As, as, as Alexandra said, we are all 3D people. Women are not a homogenous group. That's what makes humanity great, is that we are all different. 
but that means that we need to understand the different experiences of women of different uh, diverse sexualities, ethnicities, abilities, socioeconomic backgrounds, to truly learn from those experiences and act upon them. Thirdly, it is not about, as an ally, it is not about speaking for women, but amplifying the voices of women. I'm only too aware of the privilege that I have to sit on this panel, but I realise that I'm not speaking for women when I do that. I speak to all my colleagues, I engage with women all the time, and I use UN Women's Best Practice to ensure that in my, on my platform, I can speak to other men and amplify their voices. And finally, if you see something, say something. I always use the example, and I'm sure panelists will agree, of the WhatsApp group, where maybe you see something and you think, I cannot believe what has just been said there. Not bad, not out of malintent, not badly, but if you call it out, I guarantee that if you're in that WhatsApp group, you have the greater trust of the community that you operate in. So there's some of the individual actions, but also there is organizational action that needs to be taken. And the ref, you know, Everyone has different sectors in the business sector, in public sector, in government, in academia, of course. And everyone needs to drive change in their own sectors and their businesses, their teams and their cultures, because cultures are very different and complex. But there are some underlying uh, 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 principles underneath this action to, to mention just before I finish. The first one is leadership. And what I mean by leadership on this change is not just talking in inclusive language, not just showing that you're interested in these issues, but actually investing in gender equality. If you are a business, you should treat gender equality not as an HR problem to fix, but as a fundamental part of your business strategy. If you have more representation in your workplace, you're much better able to serve the communities and the customers that you need. If that is in uh, politics, as Preet has already mentioned, it's not only obviously the right thing to do to have more equality in terms of female MPs, but they're more able to understand and represent their constituents. That is crucial. Secondly, data. We need to gather data, not only just on women as a homogenous group, but on, uh, but on intersecting identities and not just the gender pay gap, which is important. But actually that qualitative data, what are the experiences? What are women actually facing on a daily basis? And finally, strategy, as I've just mentioned before, not just seeing gender equality as an issue that happens over here, but connecting it to everything. UN Women's global theme at the moment is gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow. If we have greater gender equality, not only is that good in and of itself, but we will have better outcomes in politics, in climate, and in many other issues. That's why we need to take that action. And there are lots of case studies that I could demonstrate uh, of he for she champions who we've worked with that have made quick, urgent action. Just to name one, PwC, who we work with, a professional services firm, increased the representation of women in senior leadership positions from 17% to 45% in just 15 months. It shows where there is a will, there is a way. So there are problems, but men and boys need to be involved in the solutions. We cannot leave it to women to have to continue to fight their corners. As Alexandra mentioned at the beginning, it is exhausting. Men need to play their role, and that's how we can create more long-term change. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shredi, Simon, and how 
really it is important to have male enthusiastic male supporters calling for gender equality and inclusion. I uh, now I have like a couple of questions from our audience. So the first question is for Paula, and um, uh, it, it says that did you have a female role model to get where you are in the police? My impression is that there are fewer women in the police, especially at senior level. I'm wondering if this imbalance affected your career progression. You yeah, so, yeah, a couple of uh, points in there. So. Yes, women are represent less representation of women at senior ranks in the police than there are men. Um, at constable ranks nationally, it's around 66% um, women. And then interestingly, after it gets to sergeant rank, which is the next rank in policing, so the first leadership rank in policing, and right up to chief constable, representation now is around the 25% mark of women at every single other rank. So it does drop off a cliff there, doesn't it? Um, I think there's been some progress because in the time I've been in the police, and I am wary, like Simon says, of not saying, well, then we've fixed it because we absolutely haven't. Um, but when I joined, only 2% of chief constables in the country were female. And in reality, that was one chief constable. So it did at that point go as a sort of progression where the higher up the rank you got, the less female representation there was. So we have increased our female representation at every rank, but we're nowhere near 50% yet. So there's absolutely a way to go. Um, yes, I've had really strong, really good female role models at every rank, um, which undoubtedly helps. Um, we invest very heavily in West Yorkshire Police in particular in coaching and mentoring. Um, I'm a qualified coach and it, it, there's lots of encouragement for people to obtain level five CMI coaching qualifications in the organisation um, to enable us to, to really push that forward. Because I think that relationship of seeing somebody, whether it's in an informal way or in a formal way of having mapped that path already for you and so that you're not taking that exhausting position of always being the person forging the way um, is really key and important. Um, and there have been occasions in my career where, as a woman, I've been held back for being a woman. Um, not recently. Um, I can you can recall certain specific examples of it. However, not in recent years. I would say that our organisation is really working hard. In fact, I've just come from our senior leadership forum, where the main topic of conversation this morning from the chief constable was around female representation and female retention in the police and retention of various um, ethnic groups as well and where women of colour sit in this picture. So it's an active discussion that we're having as, as recently as today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yes, it, it absolutely matters. Good coaching matters. Seeing what you want to become really matters. It's very important to me that I don't pull up the ladder. Um, I understand that whether they approach me directly or not, there are women with young families who will see me achieving what I achieve and aspire to be in that position, not because it's me specifically, but because seeing that I am able to do it absolutely I believe makes them more likely to see that as a career path that they can take themselves so quite a few different elements um, into that one question there but hopefully I've answered it answered some of those thank for you so much thank you uh, anyone would like to add anything to what Paul F said okay so I, I'll move to another we have another 
question. Actually, it is a comment with an inquiry in it. Um, I'm a voice and silence researcher and a coach, and I'm very interested in the role of coaching in helping women find their voices. In other words, what they want to say, who needs to hear it, and when is the right uh, time. I'd be really interested to know if any of yours, uh, of the panelists, uh, uh, have tried coaching for this purpose. I don't know if anyone would like to answer this. It's again about coaching and going with that. I'm happy to come in. Um, just to say, yes, I've, I've definitely had coaching, but I've also always sought a mentor. It doesn't matter what I've done throughout my career. I've always looked uh, to find somebody that's already done and achieved the things. Because I think you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are lots of really good people out there. Um, and it's amazing when you do seek uh, mentors, people are really receptive and really, really open. But I think the coaching thing is really interested because certainly for myself coming into politics, finding your sort of uh, sense of self and identity and understanding who you are as a politician takes time because of course there's all the party stuff, then there's you, then there's your constituency. Um, and I think, you know, when you have the space and time to really think through, well, what is it that you know uh, you want people to know about you. What is it that you? What's your kind of message? What's important to you? It does take time, and I, I think the thing is that we don't always have the space and time to undertake coaching and and uh, you know uh, engage in it in the way that we want. And I think development and training uh, in workplace is really really important. Protecting that space and time, and I think it's a real big challenge. It's something I definitely have experienced throughout my life. It's been a really big challenge to be committed to that. Uh, and finding the space because, you know, work pressures will always sort of take over. Um, yeah, but really good question. Thank you so much, Brett. Um, anyone would like to add anything? Yes, I'd just like yeah. to come in there with a, a bit of a reflection on, um, I want to be careful here because I am a big believer in coaching and mentoring. I absolutely am. As I've said, I'm, I'm involved in it. But sometimes we can create additional workload for women by giving them additional roles to do. <laughs> <laughs> in order to and it, and it goes back to Simon's points is to that, that men also have a, a real role to play here in the in the mentoring and coaching coaching piece because women might be able to see their same experience with other women and some women might feel more comfortable in having a female role uh, coach or mentor but but men should absolutely pick up some of that work as well because what we can do is sometimes the danger is that it in wanting senior female leaders to represent others and to bring other women with them, you can actually create an unintended consequence of giving them additional workload. <laughs> and then that becomes even more difficult for women who are trying to achieve that work-life balance. So um, I am a believer in it, but I think it's, it's something we all have to play our part in. And we have to be careful that we're not um, overburdening women with that as well. And j j just to build on 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 that. Um, Thank you so I, much. Uh, yes, Simon. Oh, sorry. Yes, can you hear me? Um, j just to build on that, I think it's a really really important point. Is that um, I think coaching is important. Clearly, we all use it. Um, uh, you know, in order to like advance our careers, as as pre pre said, and learn different experiences. But it shouldn't be as a consequence of kind of broader environmental issues in in the workplace. And actually, it kind of. If it's done in the right way, it can be great, but sometimes it does also lean into this very outdated kind of lean in for philosophy, which is that as long as women kind of, you know, build their skills and, you know, you know, learn different, uh, get kind of get different mentoring support, etc. 
um, they'll be okay in their careers was actually a lot of it is, you know, in terms of engaging men as well, it's about creating the right environment. So policies, practices, et cetera, and getting men to really invest in this and, and not make sure and, and make sure it's not something that's done on the side of the desk, as you say. So yeah, coaching is good, but not as a replacement for kind of uh, more structural change as well. Um, thank you, Simon. Since we're talking about coaching, there is an extra question about this, uh, which is like Paula indicated, like the importance of coaching. What difference did it make? Um, what difference is it? So to me personally, what difference coaching has made is, is really about focusing on what you want to achieve for yourself so maybe some of that might be about that need to please an imposter syndrome impact that is quite women feel quite heavily um is around actually what do I want what do I want to achieve so I'm not here to fit into somebody else's plan albeit I'm part of a very large organization and, and ultimately I represent the people of West Yorkshire safeguarding is my passion but what career do I want and how is that achievable and learning to ask for that with the lack of apology that most men do <laughs> so I think that's really where I personally benefited from coaching so much we have a question for Simon and other panelists uh, to what extent is mandatory gender pay gap reporting effective? Oh, thank you for that question. I'll, I'll start and then others do jump jump in. Um, uh, uh, is it is a obviously a, a, a government government piece as well? Um, I have two views on this. So the first thing that I would say is I think the gender pay gender pay gap reporting has been fantastic in terms of genuinely raising awareness about these issues. Um, I think there is more kind of conversations in the workplace around many of the inequalities, um, if you look particularly back over the past five years. So I think that is a really, really good thing. But I think it's also on the flip side been a bit of an issue because firstly, um, we end up uh, laser focusing in on one single data point. Um, which is uh, which is not necessarily, which can often distract from actually some of the broader questions that we have. So actually, yes, we need to gather data on the gender pay gap, um, but we also need to do a couple of other things. Firstly, we need to make sure that the data that we do collect is fully intersectional, coming back to that point again. And again, gender pay reporting doesn't necessarily uh, uh, force firms to kind of capture that data and insight, even though it is crucial to having equality in the workplace. And two, it can distract from understanding the broader experience that women have in the UK today. Um, so yes, you know, the pay disparities are important, but issues from, to give one example, issues around safety are really important. And, you know, too often companies think, oh, safety, oh, sexual harassment, that's not something that we need to be dealing with. But actually it very much is a business issue as well as a wider society issue. So yes, gender pay gap is, reporting is good in terms of starting the conversation, but we need to gather richer data and broader data to fully respond to the, the issues that women face today. Thank you so much. Um, if anyone else would like to comment on this question. Yeah, just to sort of say, I think, you know, it's important to remember, though, that the gender pay gap reporting is only for companies where there's the headcount of over 250. And so obviously it matters in all those other small um, companies as well. And I think what's really stark, though, that the figures, I don't know if you've seen them, that came out for March, only a quarter of UK companies have actually published the data. And that's really, really concerning because, I mean, 
we've got to have a process that enables us to enforce this. Uh, and of course, we've seen some companies uh, talk about actually the gender pay gap widening, because of course, if you don't have women at positions at uh, the higher levels, you are going to see a significant, um, you know, different differential in that respect. And you've got to be able to have proper plans. So if you are as a company, not meeting, you know, you've published it and you can see that there's some stark issues. You've got to have an action plan enabled to address that. What you've got and then how is that going to be managed, monitored, and impacted? Who takes ownership of that? And I and I think this is where, you know, uh in in the workforce, this is where women, whether it's through their unions, whether it's through the groups that they have, collectively, whether they're BAME groups, women groups, uh, you know, recognizing different uh protective characteristics, for example, and the intersectionality of women, about actually what is it that they're going to do to hold their employers to account? Uh, it's just just not good enough that, that, you know, we have a situation that only a quarter of UK companies uh, are able to publish this data. I think it's got to be much better than that, especially on International Women's Day. We've got to be holding the uh, government to account. The Women and Qualities Secretary of State needs to say, uh, actually, there's been no statement in the House and tomorrow's debate shall be really interesting because there's a backbench debate on International Women's Day about talking about these sort of issues. So it'd be really important to, to hold the government to account on this as to what, what it is that they're going to do because they need to do much, much more than this. Thank you so much. Paula um, uh, and Alex, do you want to add anything on this? Okay, if not, I will move. I got another question in here. Uh, what's your opinion of women against feminism and how to face this as women? I think like uh, it is tough than challenging men themselves. <laughs> so what do you think for all panelists? Can I say something? Yes. Um, I mean, my feeling on how to face this is to engage in conversation and listen. I think we talk about calling out, but there's actually something called calling in, which I think can be more effective in these circumstances. Sharing your personal experiences and listening to someone else's, I find is often easier to meet a common ground rather than, you know, it can be particularly, I am a very staunch feminist. So hearing someone as a woman saying that they're not a feminist, I always have that gut reaction where I'm a bit taken aback because I'm like, but how could you not be? <laughs> but I think, you know, approaching things with empathy. And I think this is the sort of thing that we just have to engage in conversation on. And I think it, it can be a bit of a dirty word. Uh, I think some people have done an incredible job in making this word be a negative thing, feminism. And I think that kind of leaving the word at the door and discussing values and suggesting how actually it's a very beneficial thing, we can turn people's opinions around. Um, but I think it has to be done in a calling in way. Otherwise, uh, you're just going to reinforce people's beliefs on the matter. Thank you so much. Um, anyone would like to comment on this? I think just to say, you know, a, a lot for a lot of women from different cultures and different backgrounds, feminism means different things to what it will mean in the United Kingdom, to what it will mean in Africa, to what it will mean in Asia, right? And there are different challenges and different barriers. And I think it's really important to recognize that in some countries, women just can't even speak out because they face, uh, you know, some clear human rights violations. So, you know, this idea that women are against feminism, I think when I speak in, to a lot of women who say feminism is very difficult for them to challenge uh, the men within their homes, within their environments, etc. It isn't that they're against it. It's just that 
how you explain it and their understanding of it is somewhat different and they come from a different place. And I think, you know, you've got, the movement has got to recognize that, um, you know, of course, women, all women want to see, uh, you know, whether it was not for themselves because their lives, you know, I look at my mother, um, she had lots of dreams when she came into this country at the age of eight, um, you know, and hopes and she sacrificed those for her children. But actually she wants to see the advances in gender despite having lived within the culture and the expectations of women, she actually wants to see that challenge because she's grown, she's been educated, she's had more experience, she sees the advantages of it, she sees that society needs to move forward and actually women have a place uh, you know, and a role. But if you'd asked her the question and framed it, are you in support of feminism? Of course, the action and uh, the re response will be very different. We've got to have much more understanding and bring women with us together, recognizing though, that women are at very different places uh, of this battle in terms of what we want to see changed in society. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, there is another interesting question to all panelists. What has kept you going when you felt deflated and frustrated about the slow change? Um, small wins. I think, <laughs> you know, it's like the, the old adage of how do you eat an elephant? You know, you, you, you can't start on day one in a police force and be, well, I'm going, you know, I'm going to be chief constable by this point in time. It's nice to, nice to have ambitions, but I, I think you do, you do have to approach these things by degrees, you know, and, and I look at the organisation I work in. Um, from the one I joined, which, by the way, I'm not, <laughs> it was not a terrible organisation, but was certainly had a much more vocal minority in the place of women in that organisation, for example, whether they belonged in firearms policing or roads policing, for example, um, was unthinkable to some colleagues long since retired at that point. But, um, but changes happen and changes happen by degrees. So I think it is about thinking just thinking how far have I come I might not have climbed the entire mountain but I've certainly climbed some of it and and accepting that it's incremental and takes place over time I think it is it, it's count your wins and successes as you go and you'll see that they're plenty thank you so much thank you Mbula. Uh, uh yes Brett you you have something to add yes just finally just to sort of say I think for me I suppose what keeps me going is the resilience my faith, my children, my family, because at the end of the day, when you go home and you haven't been able to have a win or you you face, you know, whatever it might be, the barriers, you're just reminded of actually what is really important um, and that you can't change everything. I mean, I think it's really important to recognize the parameters within which we work. And yes, there will be frustrations throughout your life. And I think for me, I've learned to just find a way of making peace with myself on some of these things, because otherwise these sort of things can eat away at you. They can really affect you and impact you and sort of self-doubt. Um, and, I, and I think my, my daughters and definitely my husband keep me grounded and remind me actually who I am and what I'm trying to do is really great, uh, but you're not going to change things overnight. And it's, you know, we need more social movements. We need more voices speaking up on the causes uh, that matter. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say really. Um, helps me thanks thank you so much thank you uh, i got a question what support systems are already in a place to promote women's leadership in the physical spaces at work i would like to answer this question what support systems are already in a place to promote women's leadership in the physical spaces at work 
I think Paula touched on this at the beginning when we started. So I don't know about other institutions that you are already in. Alexandra, do you have anything to add on this, to comment on this? Um, well, at my particular institution um, and in the wider field, there are several opportunities, particularly for women, women-only fellowships, um, training courses specifically for women, um, and help from the learned societies in the form of women-only groups um, offering support. But I think it's been touched on already today, the importance of sponsorship in helping women through their careers. It's something that within my department, we are currently growing a mentorship scheme and thinking about sponsorship. And I think that's one of the best ways we can help women in their careers. Thank you so much, uh, Alex. Anyone would like to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I did touch on it at the beginning, and I think I go back to, again, the formal and informal network. So you have both in our organisation. So um, your most formal network is the British Association for Women in Policing, which does great work as an annual awards ceremony, and it does, uh, it does, they have their own website, so please do check it out if you're interested in what they do for women in policing. So that is our most formal network. Um, as I've said, you have coaching and mentoring within the organisation itself, um, we're also running campaigns at the moment around women joining police and looking at the barriers to policing for women as to why it might not be seen as a career choice for some. For example, um, not all women or not all men, not all people want to join the police through the traditional career path of working on a response policing, blue light type front frontline policing, working on a Saturday night street corners, you know, attending all kinds of jobs when actually somebody, some people would be really fantastic detectives, but don't join because they don't want to join at that, that traditional career path that we have. So there's a lot of work on going around that at the moment around direct entry detectives. Thank you so much. I'm conscious of time, but Simon gets right. And just quickly to say, you know, th this, this stuff kind of isn't rocket science and there is clear evidence out there of the steps that, that can be taken. Um, and I just think it's interesting to note that, for example, you know, there's some things that do work and there's some things that don't. So I know that a lot of organisations um, as a way to kind of tick their diversity box will kind of do online unconscious bias training. It doesn't work like it just doesn't work. Whereas actually, if you have kind of performance targets, if you have um, skills based assessments in recruitment, if you have shortness, if you do those things, they do work. So I think it's important to kind of have a kind of comprehensive, holistic view on this, but also actually look at the evidence, look at what works and look at what organisations are doing that actually have the impact of accelerating women into leadership positions. Thank you so much, uh, Simon. Thank you all for joining us today. It was really very interesting discussion. Uh, finally, I'd like to extend a special thanks to Hannah Phillips, Martha Bird, uh, Chandi Batal, and Adanki Edwani, Cumberland Lodge Fellows, who helped to develop and plan this webinar. And please do share your feedback via our short survey, which will pop up when you, we leave this web webinar. All the recordings of the webinar can be found on our websites, as well as our podcasting channel on SoundCloud, Spotify, and other major platforms. We have recently launched a new podcast series called Life Perspectives led by our fellows, which I encourage you to check out. If you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, conferences, and events, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply send us an email at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. 
Thank you once again to our wonderful guest speakers, uh, Simon, Paula, Alexandra, and Fritz. She, uh, she had to, to leave earlier. And happy International Women's Day. Goodbye.